בשם השם נעשה ונצליח. שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים. We're starting a new week, ברוך השם. New week, new תורה, new everything, ברוך השם. Everything is new, ברוך השם. I'll continue our series of the Jewish Ashkafa, addressing a very uh, critical topic when it comes to machloket, uh, or different opinions by chachamim, uh, which seems to be a uh, troubling issue for some people that uh, are actually learning more than others uh, and uh, don't know how to deal with it. And this is one of the things that the Chazonish is going to uh, show us here, Bezad Hashem. Tonight's show is going to be for the Refua Shlema uh, for Rabbanit Sarabat Levana, Sarabat Anat, רב אפרים בן שולמית, רבנית לבנה בת שרה, אבי מורי דוד בן נסריה, אמי מורתי דוריס בת ז'ורה, and all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahais that continue to learn with us, get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu with us, and of course, those wonderful souls that continue to support our organization by donating in their time, their money, to help us continue doing everything we're doing for free, Baruch Hashem. Uh, for those of you that uh, have made your uh, orders on our website, the Kiruv website, to, to uh, get some free books uh, to distribute in your community, uh, don't worry if you haven't gotten your order. We're just getting, Baruch Hashem, a lot of orders, uh, and uh, we'll get to everyone, Bezat Hashem. There's uh, quite a few packages scheduled for uh, tomorrow, so uh, many of you are going to get uh, some boxes uh, to, uh, you know, with full of books and other things and USBs. Uh, in the next uh, week or so, uh, while others perhaps will have to wait till next week, but there's, Baruch uh, Hashem, many more orders coming in uh, every day. Uh, anyone that hasn't ordered the, uh, the new book that we have, uh, either by uh, Rav Shervit, uh, for those that have yeshivot and kolos next to them, or uh, the, uh, the new book by Rav Ephraim and his Rabbanit, that's a fantastic book for uh, new couples, old couples, or people looking to get married, uh, that uh, speak either Hebrew or English. Uh, this is the first book our organization has in English, uh, and you could order it, uh, you could order our box of 20 uh, or more on the uh, website bhkiruv.org, uh, bhkiruv.org. Uh, this is a fantastic book that could help, uh, you know, people to, uh, to get a clarity of how to be a Jew that's married, how to be a Jew that wants to get married, how to be a good wife, how to be a good husband, a good mother, a good father. Uh, these are some of the things that are uh, shown in there alongside some beautiful illustrations, uh, some uh, pretty pictures that are uh, certainly uh, a, a big addition. Uh, so with that being said, we have uh, quite a bit to, uh, to learn tonight. Uh, I don't know if any of you could actually see the, uh, the amount of sfarim that we have here is a little bit more than usual which Be'ezot Hashem will have the merit to use each and every one of them. Uh, but the key is to understand that the Chazoni Shir has been taking us on a journey for anyone that hasn't uh, been following this series, even though you could certainly benefit from simply watching this lecture, uh, as each lecture independently has uh, you know, uh, topics that are uh, you know, good to be learned individually, it's certainly going to be a lot more rewarding and a lot more uh, uh, clear for anyone that watches this series from the beginning and just follows along, uh, especially uh, the first 20 lectures that give you a very good foundation of what emunah and bitachon is. Because if a person does not have emunah and bitachon, many of the things that follow it uh, simply are become irrelevant. 
And that's one of the things we also discussed last week, uh, as the Chazonish gave us clarification of the importance of having emunah and bitachon uh, that is uh, dependent on a foundation of yirat shamayim. And this is something that, again, we're going to build on uh, this week, because without yirat shamayim, there is no chokhmah, there is no wisdom, and without wisdom, a person is simply never going to get to have emunah and bitachon on Hashem. They may have some fantasy in their head, thinking that if they think good, good things will happen, like some of the uh, uh, so-called gurus out there teach. Uh, but uh, a person uh, that has lived long enough to see this, uh, you know, uh, type of thinking go to uh, go to waste, uh, you know, uh, will know that uh, this is certainly not part of the Torah. It is very important to think positive and to think good and to be optimistic, but not because you think that your thoughts will lead to a changed world. Rather, your thoughts can certainly, you know, uh, affect your mood, it can affect uh, your, uh, your behavior, but it's not necessarily going to change the world around you. Uh, there are certainly things that can change the world around you, but that requires action, not just thoughts. So, with, uh, with that being said, we have uh, in, this, uh, <coughs> in this chapter, in the section 5 of this chapter, the Chazonish has really been going in, uh, to and, and letting us know about the wisdom of the sages. The wisdom of the sages when it came to science, when it comes to medicine, when it comes to philosophy, is beyond extraordinary. Anyone that wants to see a little bit, uh, some examples of it, can watch some of the, la- you know, of the last few lectures, two, three lectures, that we've actually covered this topic. You could also watch our uh, film that we did uh, several years ago uh, called Torah, Science, and, uh, and uh, Wisdom of the Sages, or Ancient Wisdom. Uh, I think we had a couple of names for it, but it's uh, Torah, Science, and Ancient Wisdom, I think is the last one that we had, same film. Uh, and uh, these, uh, the, this film and these lectures really show actual examples of the extraordinary wisdom of the sages actually being put to practice, whether it's their knowledge of, you know, different uh, uh, medical, uh, uh, you know, knowledge and expertise that is uh, not even available today. For example, the liposuction is available today, but not in the same capacity as it was uh, available to the sages, uh, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, as we saw from the example in the Gemara Masechet Bava Metzia, when they uh, gave uh, a, a surgery to uh, Rabbi Eliezer ben Rabbi Shimon that uh, took out three buckets full of fat out of his body. He was a very big person, not for the sake of beautifying him, but rather for the sake of testing to see how pure his, uh, his flesh was uh, and if he had any sins. Point being is, we see that many of the things that the sages discussed showed their expertise in science, in medical uh, in philosophy, but what happens when we are addressing different type of topics, whether it's sensitive, you know, fundamental topics like sachar ve'onesh, which is reward and punishment, genom, things of that nature, or it's other topics when it comes to halacha, comes to a different, uh, you know, a different idea, different uh, opinion about uh, the observance of Shabbat or the, uh, the leniencies that you have for certain people that didn't grow up religious. You know, we have these types of things still, you know, obviously in our lives, very much a pertinent part of learning Torah today. So what happens when you see different opinions by great sages? 
whether it's the great sages of today, great sages of, of the previous generation, can you just pick and choose whichever one you want? You know, on one hand, it sounds reasonable. I mean, he's a great sage, he's a great sage. This is a group of big sages, this is a group of big sages. On the other hand, we have the Gemara in Masechet uh, Rosh Hashanah, page 14, say that uh, the Kula de Bet Shammai, the Kula de Bet Hilel Rasha'u, someone that uh, looks for the leniencies of Bet Shammai or the leniencies of Bet Hilel, meaning he's always looking for the most lenient opinion. Whatever is easiest for him to do, that's the one he's going to pick. The Gemara says that person is a Rasha, that person is a wicked person. On the other hand, the same Gemara says, the Chuma de Bet Shammai, the Chuma de Bet Hilel, someone that's looking for the stringencies of Bet Shammai or Bet Hilel, which are obviously two conflicting houses of Torah, are, uh, you know, if he's only looking for who's the most stringent, he's like a blind man walking in darkness. And unfortunately, this is one of the things that happens in the, uh, the world today when people... Uh, get some inspiration to become more religious, but they do not make themselves a rabbi like the Torah commands for us to do. And they simply just lead their own way. And they figure that if uh, I uh, learn something, then I can just paskin for myself. If I read enough, if I listen to enough lectures, uh, then uh, certainly I can just choose whatever is best for me, especially if I'm the most stringent. And then finally one day he goes to the synagogue and he sees that no one else is as stringent as him and he starts looking at everybody else as if they are wicked but in reality the same Torah tells him that his stringency makes him look like a fool why it's wrong so there are times to be lenient there are times to be stringent and a person needs to know that they don't know enough to do things by themselves hence the reason why there's such importance of having a rabbi not just a rabbi that lived 2000 years ago or 800 years ago or even 30 years ago but actually living breathing rabbi that you could ask and uh, and consult with before you take things on many times i have young people reach out to me and tell me listen rabbi i made a big mistake i made a nedel that I'm not going to do such and such. And now I made a mistake. I, I broke the nedel. I made a vow that I'm never going to sin again. But now I just sinned. I made a vow that I'm not going to go to such place. But I'm there right now. And I'm afraid because I heard in a shiul that someone that breaks a nedel is a, uh, someone in this family can die. What can I do to break this nedel? The first question really is, who told you you should make a nedel? And the answer is, he told himself he thought he's being more religious he or she thought that they're being more stringent and therefore more holy but in reality they're being more foolish why no one told you to make a nedel you should not make a nedel and in fact you don't know enough about a nedel to make a nedel why you can't make a nedel to not make a sin it's not a valid nedel why because you've already made a vow at Mount Sinai and something that already has a pre-existing nether on it, you can't make an additional nether on it. But hence the point. Many times people think that if they wear certain type of clothes that, uh, you know, that, that's going to make them more frum. If they uh, make certain vows, that's going to make them more frum. If they add certain stringencies, that's going to make them more frum. But in reality, more times than not, that just makes them more, uh, more apparent for anyone that's religious and, and learned enough that this person is new. This person doesn't know enough and probably does not have a rabbi that knows enough either, if he even has a rabbi. 
So these are type of the things that you deal with every single day. Again, we praise and we're and we're happy to see Baalit Shuva, we're happy to see converts, we're happy to see people that are trying, uh, trying to be better and to better themselves. But again, there is a way, there's a way to do things. Sometimes I have new people that uh, you know want to uh, do the same thing I did. I saw your film. I want to be a Talmud Chacham. I want to do the same thing. So can you study with me seven hours just like your rabbi did with you? This uh, you know, is, is very, very cute because it shows that they watched the film, but it also shows they didn't get the point. <laughs> Everyone has their own journey. My journey was one thing, and you got a little bit of a tidbit of an idea of what it was like, but to think that the same thing can be repeated for you means that you don't really understand the whole point of the message. The whole point of the message is that you have to make self-sacrifice. You have to make major changes. That's the whole point. It doesn't mean that just because you decided and you woke up on the right side of the bed that the whole world has to change and acclimate themselves for your new change and now all of a sudden everyone has a free seven hours to spend with you. The reality is that today there's an enormous amount of Torah that we have online. We have literally 5,000 shurim myself, another uh, five or 6,000 shurim by Rabbi Ephraim and a couple thousand shurim from other rabbis of the organization. Well, then more enough for anyone who truly wants to learn to learn. But people want that hand-holding. People want that custom-made. People want the same thing, but they don't realize what it entailed. They don't realize the rest of the story. And the same concept goes when you're reading something in a book and you see that there is a halacha, there's something that one of the sages said, and then you see that, you know, in the commentary, or even sometimes in the body of the work, it says, v'yeshomrim, which means, and there are that, some that say such and such. And many people say, oh, wait, this is what he just wrote everything on, but he also said there are some that say otherwise. So the otherwise sounds better to me. Or in the Gemara. There are many times where it says uh, there's a uh, the first opinion, second opinion, or the first version, second version. So which version do we go with? These are some of the questions that are very, very critical for a person to know what to do and how do we actually pask in halacha, how do we actually decide which is the right way, which is the wrong way, and that's one of the things that is going to be the message we're going to try to Be'ezot Hashem address. It won't look like it at first because we're going back to the medical uh, knowledge of the sages, but you'll see as we go along how it quickly shows that there's, there's a lot more to just than just showing us the medical expertise and the wisdom of the sages and obviously our forefathers, some of which were the descendants of King David. So the Chazonish brings us several examples in the Gemara, in Masechet Chulin, in the Gemara, in Masechet Bava Metziah, and different types of places in the Torah of how there was extraordinary knowledge by the sages. And now he brings us what we delved into briefly last week, which is the Gemara in Masechet Psachim, page 56a, which tells us about the Sefer Arefuot, the Book of Cures. The Book of Cures that was given to, uh, to us by Shlomo HaMelech, who had divine wisdom that was gifted to him by Kadosh Baruch Hu. On the day of his birthday, when he became king, uh, Hashem asked him what he wants, was he want to be the most powerful king, the richest king, and instead of asking for power and, uh, and, uh, and wealth, he asked for wisdom of the Torah, 
and HaKadosh Baruch Hu was so happy with his decision that he actually gave him everything that he uh, uh, asked for as far as the wisdom alongside the two other options which is wealth and power so during the time of Shlomo there was no war everyone was scared of him even the animals the trees the bugs and the demons everyone was under the kinghood of Shlomo Amelech. his wisdom was extraordinary and the world at large knew this this is also the reason why he was able to marry uh, the the prince uh, the princes from all of the nations thousand different princes uh, that uh, that were excited to marry him uh, including the uh, one of the uh, the, the princess uh, of uh, of Egypt she caused them many problems because she did not officially abandon her idolatry or she brought it back into her life but the point being is is that Shlomo Melech wanted to marry all of these women because he knew that in order for the Mashiach to officially arrive he has to bring world peace and what better way to do world peace than to convert all of the nations to Judaism and that in essence was his undercover plan to get the you know get the princess to be happy wife happy life and then eventually influence our nation to convert to Judaism or at the very least be righteous Noahides and no more idolatry this plan obviously did not work but the point being is that was in essence the uh, the plan so we see the wisdom of Shlomo Melech is unlike others and one of the things that showed some of his wisdom to the generations that followed him was this Sefer Arefuot this book of cures which the uh, the Torah tells us was something out of this world because it literally had the perfect cure for any ailment possible there are over 900 uh, ways to be exact 903 ways to die according to the Gemara you know many of those ways are different types of illnesses whether it be the illnesses of today or the illnesses of the previous generations all of those illnesses have a cure and this book had it all you have to do open the book Oh, it says take this take this take this you know cook it together take a uh, small shot of it finished you're cured in a short period of time you're back to better than ever so obviously this is the greatest thing in the world if this was around today there would be uh, a lot of unemployed pharmaceutical uh, people out there but needless to say the uh, decision of Chizkiyahu Melech was not only one that uh, shocked the uh, uh the world at the time but it's certainly one that the world is benefiting from on the uh, on the capitalism end of it uh today but uh here the uh Chazunish is telling us that this sefer refuot was hidden away by Melech. and rashi comments that this was because the people were not humbled by their illness but will be cured immediately meaning that the people did not get to the point of the sickness which is Hashem made you sick that's because you're being punished because you did something wrong because he wants you to do tshuva and come back to him in essence that's the point you got sick so you can do tshuva so you can reflect on the fact that you are insignificant that you need Hashem that's one opinion the Rambam who 
followed the uh, the uh, who lived about a hundred years after Rashi writes in his commentary on a Mishnah two opinions and he says that he was given an explanation by one of the Chachamim in his generation that Shlomo HaMelech wrote this Sefer Refuot so that when anyone became ill he would refer to that book do what was written in it and be cured and when Chizkiyahu saw that people were not trusting in Hashem meaning they had no bitachon he took it away and he hid it this is one of the opinions the Rambam brings but he himself does not agree with this opinion in fact he refutes this opinion vehemently even though he brings it up now you would ask yourself wait why bring it up if you disagree with it because there's value there too because there's Torah there too and that's one of the things that a person that learns Torah gets to understand that even if something is not the law it's not the truth per se as far as the final bottom line there is Torah in it there is truth in it there is wisdom in it and it's all part of the great extraordinary living Torah so the Rambam brings this as this is one opinion yet the Rambam there disagrees with that commentary and he's saying this lightly because if you look inside the commentary in the Mishnah the 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 Rambam disagrees with this vehemently calling it like a big waste and completely uh, impossible and you know all types of things like aggressive writings aggressive writings against this the Rambam disagrees with this commentary claiming that it's not right to take the means of healing away from people just like it's not right to deprive them of food but it seems that says this is now the Chazonish going back it seems that the commentary mentioned by the Rambam is the one passed down through the generations whereas the Rambam's own commentary is difficult to understand for it should not have said the Gemara's uh, uh, that said in the Gemara's Sefer Refuot without elaboration but rather it should have said what was in it in the terms of the forbidden and the harmful Chazonish clarifies what is what's going on with the Rambam here that he's disagreeing with it and you know what what is he saying what's his opinion in so many words the Chazonish is telling us that you have Rashi saying the reason why Chizkiyahu hid this extraordinary book of medicine of cures I should say not even medicine is because people did not fear God they didn't get to the point they didn't get the message why they're sick the Rambam says he learned from someone in his generation that it's because people did not have confidence in Hashem didn't have bitachon Hashem meaning they didn't pray enough that Hashem will heal them without taking any medicine because they relied on this medicine but his opinion himself was that this book contained both cures and poison meaning they had good and forbidden and some people like we have in every generation were wicked and took the book in order to learn clever poisons in order to kill people sort of like part of the pharmaceutical industry does today so here we see three different opinions 
Why was uh, the reason that Chizkiyahu hid this book? Lack of fear of heaven. Lack of confidence in heaven. Confidence in Hashem. Three, poison. Bad people. Those are the three reasons. The Rambam and the, and the Chazoni says, really the one that has the most tradition aside from Rashi is the one where they lack bitachon, meaning lacking bitachon and lacking yirat shamayim are the most common ones that we find. Whereas the one that the Rambam himself is saying, which is that there was poison in there, is not as common. So the Rambam questions the commentary on the basis of comparison to food. And that requires understanding. Meaning, instead of telling us which one is the right answer, like you would typically expect from, you know, any other type of, you know, uh, uh, secular uh, 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 book of, uh, of law or of science or, or, or any type of debate, the Chazonish goes in a completely different direction. He's not even telling you yet who's right and who's wrong. He hinted towards it. But in reality, he didn't confirm, he didn't say, this is it. Instead, he's telling you, what is the argument of the Rambam in the first? Why is he even arguing this? Because that's more important than which one is right. Which one is the final rule? Which one is the final reality? And he says, the whole basis of the Rambam's uh, refuting this is that he questions this commentary because he compares this cure to food because it says in the Gemara in Maseret Bavakama page 85a that it's learned in the Tana Devei Ishmael, Rabbi Ishmael regarding a person who's uh, bodily damage who caused bodily damage to another person and the Torah says that he has to uh, recompense him so it says there and completely heal him meaning you punch somebody in the face, you cause them some gash on their face, now you have to fix it. So what does it mean fix it? Rashi says, pay the doctor to heal him. Go pay a doctor, that's going to stitch him up. And from this we learn that there's a permission has been given from the Torah to go to the doctor to get a cure and for the doctor himself to heal you, to help you. Also in the Gemara Masechet Brachot, it says, page 68, in the name of Rav Acha, that since it's not the way of people to heal, but nevertheless it's customary in regards to this particular issue, as far as going to a doctor, whether you should pray for it, or you should just uh, uh, get uh, uh, go to the doctor, Rashi there explains that the people should not really try to cure other people, Rather, they should ask Hashem for mercy. And Abaye elaborates on this Gemara and objects to Rav Acha. You know, Rav Acha is telling us, listen, you have a sickness, you have an ailment, you have some problem, don't go to the doctor. Why should you go to the doctor? Go to the healer of all wounds, the healer of all sicknesses. Who? Go to Hashem. Go to Hashem. That's what Rav Acha says. Abaye says no. He objects. Why? He says, one should not say that because permission has been granted for the doctor to heal and from this we see that medical care is not like food 
for we don't need a special verse in the Torah to permit us to eat rather hunger is not a punishment and eating is actually a way to serve Hashem as it says the table of the righteous people is compared to an altar in the temple and it says in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot chapter 3 uh Mishnah number three three people who ate at one table and spoke words of Torah while they're eating it's as if they ate at the table of Hashem but illness is a punishment and it's right for an ill person to strengthen and resolve his resolve and do tshuva and to pray for mercy but permission was nevertheless granted to seek treatment because only a few only a select few are on such a high spiritual level at which prayer is sufficient and physical treatment is required so what's going on here here abaye is not telling of Acha that he's wrong he's saying if there's an ailment then you're right a person can pray to Hashem to help him but don't say that this is the only way that we're not allowed to go to doctor and if you go to a doctor you're not religious enough or you're not close to Hashem enough you should know the fact that the Torah says that you know the the doctor is allowed to cure is allowed to heal that means that the, the Torah knows that many and quite uh, you know quite frankly most people are not at that level to simply just pray to Hashem for a cure he has a stomach problem he has an eye problem he has a head problem he has a leg problem he has any type of problem he wants to go to the doctor and that does not make him less religious perhaps he has less bitachon in Hashem than the one that truly believes 100% that Hashem will cure him but don't just say that if you are a true servant of Hashem you don't need to ever go to a doctor just uh, pray to Hashem no you can do this or that it all depends on where you stand as far as where your level is the fact that we have permission from the Torah to go to a doctor to seek treatment means that most people are going to do that just that why because very few people are in such a high spiritual level where they can actually withstand not going to the doctor and even more so even if a person says you know what I'm gonna force myself to be on that spiritual level and uh, and simply not go to the doctor and Hashem is gonna send me the cure now that's you know very nice that you're trying to do it but if your prayer is not at such a high level if your righteousness is not at such a high level if your actions are not at such a high level you know outside of that particular uh, act over there your prayer may not be answered meaning that you actually have to go to the doctor because your actions do not justify preceding it do not justify your current actions of just simply being lazy or simply refusing to go to the doctor because you're trying to force Hashem to give you a miracle so here there is a debate between the sages but it's not really a debate of one saying right and the other one saying wrong no he's just simply saying don't just say this one thing rather it's this and that it's praying to Hashem and for a cure and also going to the doctor for most people unless they're very very high spiritually and like the Ramban says you know people that have a high level of Yirat Shemaim, they don't need to go to the doctor there's nothing for them at the doctor because Hashem will heal them so now going back to the argument at hand which is in regards to Chizkiyahu what does this all have to do with it 
Now it says, in regards to the generation of Chizkiyahu, it was different than all the other generations. Because the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 94b says, that at a, during the time of Chizkiyahu, he made, literally, almost everyone do tshuva to such an extent that he put the sword into the ground. He said, whoever does not learn Torah is going to get the sword instead, meaning death penalty. Everyone had to learn Torah. And this had such an impact on Am Yisrael that lived under his kingdom. During his time, it was the, the kingdom was split into two. So it wasn't all of Am Yisrael. But the people that were with him, the people that were under his domain, if you will, the Gemara says that they searched from the north to the south, from Dan until Be'er Sheva, and they couldn't find one person that was ignorant of Torah. They searched from Givat to Antripas, and they could not find even a young boy or girl, nor a man or a woman, who were not proficient in the halachot of uh, purity and impurity, which is the most difficult parts of the Torah. And also the Gemarai Maseret Sanhedrin says in page 20a that on the verse in Proverbs chapter 31 verse 30, the Chachamim say this verse is describing three different generations. This is the verse that you sing to your wife, Eshet Chayim Mimza, on, on, on Friday night. So it says, the uh, deceitful is charm is referring to the generation of Moshe Rabbeinu. They were in such high level. Vain is beauty, is referring to the generation of Yeshua ben Nun. And a God-fearing wife is to be praised, that's referring to the generation of Chizkiyahu Melech. Such a generation, therefore, was worthy of standing strong in their bitachon and emunah in Hashem and could shun the services of doctors. And therefore, the Rambam already wrote in Parashat Bechukotai, this is Nachmanides, that the few remaining people who are zealous and sanctified by the service of Hashem do not use doctors. But that is the level of very few, such as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his friends. So here, Rabbi we see a lot of information. We're going to try to break it down into simple, simple uh, uh, words here that the overall body of it is really discussing what happened to this book what happened to this book we know what happened to the book Chizkiyahu hid it next question comes up is why did he hide it Rashi based out of France 900 years ago the ultimate foundation of commentary on both the written Torah and the oral Torah says the reason why Chizkiyahu hid it was because people did not get the message. They did not get the message that this sickness is a punishment and Hashem is giving them a sign, if you will, or a message that it's time for them to repent. It's time for them to do tshuva. As Rabbi Chaim Volozhin writes nearly 200 years ago that one of the ways that HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaks to us today is through ailments, through pain. How so? If your arm hurts, 
Start reviewing all of the actions you did with your arm. See if you can find any sin that you've done recently with your arm. If you haven't done recently, look further back. It could be something as horrible as wasting seed or stealing money, stealing something else, touching something you're not allowed to touch. Many things that a person could do with their hands. On the other hand, if your leg hurts, Hashem is telling you, you made a sin with your legs. Perhaps there was a shiur Torah that you were supposed to go to, but instead of going to the shiur Torah, you decided to stay home and watch the game. You decided to go to, uh, you know, some nightclub. You decided to go anywhere else except to the synagogue to go watch a shiur Torah. You use your legs for the wrong reason. Your eyes hurt. You haven't watched your eyes. You have a headache. You are, you have some dirty thoughts in your mind. And again, these are just minor examples. There's no end to the types of issues that HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the tools that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has. Point being is, Rabbi Chaim Ivolojan says, if there is pain somewhere, know that there is a clear message there for you particularly. For you. Why? Because if your arm hurt for a sin that your leg made, how can you learn from such a thing? Such a punishment would be uh, vicious by God because there's nothing you can learn. How can you connect the leg to the arm? How can you connect the eyes to the feet? There's no way. Hence the reason why if you have something hurting, then you should know a Kadosh Baruch is talking to you to that. Now, Rashi is saying that Am Yisrael forgot about this message to the extent where they simply didn't take it into account. They didn't take it into account. They just wanted the cure. And you can't blame them. Anyone that has endured pain in their life knows that even the Gemara itself, and Masechet Chagigah, I believe it is, uh, that says that you don't judge people when they're enduring pain. So much so that when Job said, uh, um, you know, bad things, said heretical things against Hashem while he was enduring so much pain, the sages asked, how come Hashem did not punish him? And then they answer, that's because in heaven they do not judge you when you're in the middle of pain. You're not judged the same way. This does not give you a free ticket to just do whatever you want just because you're in pain. Point being is, when a person is in pain, they're not themselves. So they're not judged accordingly. So now, the people had pain. They want a cure. They're not worried about, listen, oh, my arm hurts. That means that I touched something. Oh, yeah, I probably, yeah, that money that I stole from Steve. I probably should give it back. Oh, my eyes hurt. Oh, yeah, you know what? I looked at that girl. Oh, my, no, they didn't think like that. Just, just give me a cure. Just give me a cure. Now, this is all fine and great if you want the cure because the pain is just simply too much for you to endure. But what about after the pain is gone? Why didn't you review your actions after the pain is gone? To at least do tshuva then. So Rashi says they didn't have enough Yirat Shemayim. The Rambam, on the other hand, says two different opinions. He's telling us, number one, he's heard an opinion where uh, the uh, uh, people did not have bitachon, where they were not at the level that the um, sages said uh, in the name of Rav Acha that uh, they simply should just rely on Hashem, that he's going to provide them the cure. 
and not uh, go to doctors. Not go to doctors. Just rely on Hashem. They didn't do it anymore. Why? Because they figured, listen, I could just get the cure. So that's that's it. I don't I don't need Hashem. I don't need anything. I don't need to rely on anything. I already have the I have the solution. This disconnected people from from from, uh, from Hashem. But the Rambam disagrees with this opinion because it says, listen, how could it possibly be that such a righteous generation where you couldn't find anyone that was ignorant of Torah, you couldn't find someone that would, that didn't know the most difficult parts of the Torah, how can you say such a thing where people did not have confidence in Hashem? But yet at the same time, the Rambam, bring, the Rambam says that perhaps the reason why Chizkiyahu took this book was because no matter how many righteous people were under the Klal Israel, there's always some wicked people. Even if there's one wicked person, he could influence others. And there was some information in that book, since it was in essence a book with a lot of revelations in it, there was some information in that book that could make the perfect poisons, that could endanger Am Yisrael, and Chizkiyahu saw that apparently either this was already being used to hurt people or kill them, or he simply did not trust the people of that generation because there was one too many wicked people also that were walking among some of the righteous. Even if you go to a yeshiva or you go to a kolel, or you go to a synagogue, even if everybody's praying with great kavanah and they love Hashem and they're excited, or like we, uh, you know, we went to Eretz Yisrael, we're praying, Baruch Hashem, in our kolel, on Rosh Hashanah, the chazan, the chazan starts crying hysterical. You would think this person is like, uh, you know, he has all the sins in the world, but when you know him personally, he's the Kodesh Kodeshim. An amazing tzaddik. Doesn't even look right or left, simply looks at the Torah, but he's crying hysterical on Rosh Hashanah, yearning to HaKadosh Baruch please forgive us. Please help us. Please accept our gratitude. I started crying. Other people start crying. It's Rosh Hashanah. But we're crying to HaKadosh Baruch Why? This is Yom Adin. Most people say, yeah, I reserve my crying for, for Yom Kippur. But if you're crying to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Rosh Hashanah, that's good. So you would think, the people there are crying to Hashem at the time of Chizkiyahu. You're right. But guess what? Even at a place where you have a Chazan that's crying, even at a place where you have people learning Torah, even at a place you have people only come there to learn Torah, there's always going to be some wicked people that try to get things to go the opposite direction. I remember there was one time a um, lecture I did in New York. And uh, right when I got to this place, somebody told me that uh, some famous or infamous heretic uh, came to the event looking to cause trouble. And uh, this, this clown apparently likes to go to lectures by different rabbis and intimidate them with, uh, with his questions, with his, uh, his demeanor. And apparently he's caused some trouble for, for some rabbis. And Baruch Hashem, I, uh, you know, I was, I guess, uh, made a little differently. So I was actually looking forward to this. I'm talking for three hours. 
three hours, this guy is sitting there like a, you know, like he's part of the wall. Doesn't say a single word. Then after three hours of talking, you know, there's, there's questions and answers, and all of a sudden, this guy comes in for the attack. He starts throwing all types of things that are, in essence, trying to contradict what was said, not by actually bringing any proofs from the Torah or anything, by simply just disagreeing with it and saying all types of things to cause people, other people, to have doubts. So, of course, as uh, his plan was to destroy, mine was also to destroy and he uh, got uh, the, his own foot in his own mouth when uh, he got the uh, unexpected rebuttals that uh, were not uh, something that he's ever seen before because usually, you know, uh, the, the rabbis that he's encountered were perhaps a, a little bit uh, a diff- of different demeanor, less aggressive, and uh, quite frankly, more surprised. So, Baruch Hashem for that. The key is to understand that there's always going to be somebody there's always going to be somebody out there that is going to try to throw some mud on your beautiful creation. You know, you're trying to do something good and someone is going to be uh, out there and try to, uh, to just bring you down. This is like the snake, the serpent. The serpent, initially, when he was created, was the most beautiful creature out there. He walked on two, he had arms and legs, he had, in essence, the image of a body, image of a human being, but is, uh, he, was, he was an animal. He was able to talk. But he was punished. Not only did Hashem remove his ability to walk, remove his uh, arms and legs, uh, but also cut his tongue. Why did he cut his tongue? Because his sin was made with his tongue. And any time that uh, the Chachamim, uh, the Chafetz uh, Chaim, talks about people that are ba'alei lashonara, that talk about lashonara, or gossip and things like that, he says that their sins are like the sins of the snake, where they simply want to kill for no joy whatsoever. Why? Because the snake doesn't necessarily eat everything he kills. Sometimes he just kills. Sometimes he just kills. So, Sometimes a person says Lashonara, says gossip, says something, not because they benefit out of this information being exposed about so-and-so. She just told everybody that so-and-so had a uh, miscarriage. She just told everyone that so-and-so is having problems in their, uh, you know, in their slumbite. She just told everybody that so-and-so just bought a house. He just told uh, everyone that this guy just got fired or he just got a raise. All of these things are Lashonara, by the way. All of them are forbidden. I always tell people, don't talk about people. But for whatever reason or another, people never, they miss that part of the shield. And that's why the Genom parties continue. Where people just get together. Sometimes it's two of them, sometimes it's five of them, sometimes it's 20 of them talking about other people. And everyone in that party is going to go to Genom for that party. Why? You're not allowed to talk about people unless it's for toilet. It's to help somebody. But generally speaking, these types of talks, these types of uh, conversations are never to help anybody. They're simply just to show you know some juicy information about somebody that you've been waiting to tell somebody. This is like the snake, like serpent, where he just spits out his venom without any benefit whatsoever. So there's going to be people like that in your life that just spit out venom 
without any benefit whatsoever they just want to hurt why you ask them they don't even give you a reason they don't even know they just do it i remember years ago that when i first started giving my uh shulim and putting them online which in itself was a uh a funny story of divine inspiration to do something that i didn't even realize i was doing and uh you know some people started watching the lectures and uh started uh subscribing to the youtube channel but it was you know a small number 180 something subscribers and uh my main goal was to publicize you know my rabbi's channel rabbi Ephraim's channel, to get more and more people to watch him i wasn't necessarily looking to become a uh, speaker needless to say uh do what i'm doing today but uh anyway we had our shulim online and some people were coming to the shul and some people were watching online and uh Hashem, many of those people that watched it back then nearly a decade ago are still watching today uh certainly improved and uh and uh inspired all these years but uh at that time i remember coming out of shul one time and one guy from the uh from the kila who was you know like one of these people that's like you know perhaps his cousin is the serpent he pretended to be a friend but uh or whatever somebody that's in the kila that was friendly and he sees me outside he goes hey how are you listen i uh, i saw that you have uh, a youtube channel you have uh people uh listening to the shoe to, to your shulim i said yeah bauch hashem bauch hashem and uh, he says yeah you know i see you even have 180 subscribers or 187 whatever the number was he apparently remembered it like it imprinted in his mind see you have 187 subscribers you almost like Rabenu. you know he had uh, some famous rabbi that he was following in israel that's been doing it for 40 years and he was making fun of me that uh you know i had 187 subscribers and his uh, rabbi that's been doing it for 40 years has many many more now my response was yeah Baruch Hashem. you know a smile just like this yeah Baruch Hashem. in reality what he was he doing what was he doing in so many words telling me listen you're a nobody you're never going to be anybody and the fact that you're even trying to be somebody is a joke and i'm having a laugh that's in essence what he was telling me that's in essence what he was telling me but it wasn't like you know listen the text message you know just to hurt you privately no it was in front of other people but Baruch Hashem, at that moment gave me some special strength to just simply smile and say Baruch Hashem, and that's it that's how i took it years passed and Baruch Hashem, things have changed let's just say that so what was his benefit of saying such a nasty comment nothing perhaps the benefit was that he's remembered today as a nasty person 10 years later that's what his benefit is in reality there are many people like that there are people that are going to simply just throw water on your fire just try to get you to not do things this happens often to people that are ballet chuba you know their uh, people see them with a uh, yarmulke oh what happened to you somebody died like why can't they wear a keeper just because why does somebody have to die apparently you don't think i'm good enough to be a jew I'm good enough to be a religious Jew. Oh, what happened to you? Uh, you uh, oh, all of a sudden you're one of the Chachamim. You come to the Shul Torah. Why can't I come to the Shul Torah without being one of the Chachamim? Maybe I want to be a Chacham. 
There's always these types of people. Or they see you praying for a long amount of time. And they have something to say about that. Or they see that you don't want to talk during uh, prayer, during shul. Or all types of things. People always have something to say. I remember the same thing happened to me when I was in business. Many, many years ago, before probably most of you were even born. I was a young kid that was very inspired that to, to make it, to make it in life. I was very uh, going through some very difficult times financially, didn't have much money to, uh, to eat or drink, literally had to live off of $1 per day because I had to save every penny that I had to pay rent. And every day I would leave the house, you know, at the crack of dawn, something around like 5.30 in the morning, get on the bus, bus ride to work was usually about an hour, hour and a half, sometimes longer, get to Manhattan from, uh, from Staten Island, and start my day early, and I would stay there working nonstop until 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. Literally, come home, sleep for a couple of hours, and do the whole thing again. So when I would come home, you know, usually by the time I would get home, there was the last bus, I think it was around midnight or whatever it was, and uh, by the time I would get home, the bus ride home was much shorter because there was no traffic, so it would only take like maybe a half hour or so to get home. And, uh, but then I would walk, you know, all the way from the bus stop, all the way to the house and, you know, with my little briefcase and, you know, beat up from the day and tired. And there was always this group of losers that, uh, were hanging out outside, drinking, laughing, doing nothing with their life. And I remember that every night when I lived in this one place, every night it was the same group of people always looking at me, where are you coming from? And I would always say the same thing coming from work. Why? Why do you work so much? Why don't you hang out? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I said, no, listen, I got to work. I got, uh, you know, stuff to do and move on with my life. And every day, the same exact thing. And once in a while, they'd pick at me and say, oh, you work so much. You're like a slave. You're like a this. You're like a that. Why do you do it? Go do this. Go do that. Well, long story short, some time passed and things changed. Eventually, I didn't need to take the bus anymore. Eventually, I was able to get myself an apartment in Manhattan. Eventually, I was able to get another apartment in Manhattan and in a company and so on and so forth. And some of those same losers wanted to work for me. So, there are always going to be people in your way. If you are on a path to succeed in anything in life, the snake will try to tell you Something, even if he has no gain whatsoever. His gain is simply just to mess with you, just to pick at you, just to spit some venom at you. Even if you gave him the same opportunity the next day or with somebody else, he wouldn't do the same thing. Why? He was sent as a tool of a Satan to get you, get in your way. Sometimes it's, a, uh, uh, it's something that discourages people. Many times it is. But the key is to know that if you're going in the right path, you don't need to get any type of uh, reassurance from your surroundings. Quite frankly, expect none. No reassurance from your surroundings if you're going in the right path, the path of Hashem. Why? Because there are many people that are not on that path and they're going to do everything possible to keep you out of that path also because the Satan is in essence telling their neshama that you doing tshuva, you getting closer to Hashem is in essence a prosecution against them. Why didn't they do the same thing? So they're in the Shama. They're subconsciously doing something. They don't even realize why they're even doing it. But that's part of the reason. Anyway, 
we have here a Rashi that tells us that Am Yisrael were not humbled by their sickness. They didn't realize that the sickness is a punishment. They didn't have fear of Hashem. Rambam is telling us one opinion is lack of confidence in Hashem. The other opinion is because there are some wicked people that showed up even to the holy place, even to the Bet HaMikdash. There are some bad people. The Mishnah in Masechet Yoma says that one of the steps in preparation of um, preparing the Kohen Gadol to the big day of Yom Kippur is a week before Yom Kippur, he leaves his house and he lives in the Bet HaMikdash. And during that week, there's a couple of uh, uh, Dayanim from the Sanhedrin that train him about what to do during that big day of Yom Kippur because he has to bring all the Korbanot on that day unlike the rest of the year where he could simply choose what he wants to do, what he wasn't want to do. On Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol brings all the Korbanot. And he has to go to the Kodesh Kodeshim. And he has to do everything in a specific way. And after training him throughout this whole week, he's without his wife, he's without his kids. Before they give him to the next set of uh, Chachamim that are going to teach him how to do the Ktoret, which was a unique and very, very most difficult job at the, uh, the Bet Mikdash. The two Dayanim would tell him, we're here to remind you not to do all the things that we've taught you like the way of the Sadducees. And you are here vowing that you're not going to do it like the Sadducees, the heretics. And then they would turn around and cry. And he would say, yes, I'm not going to do it. And he would turn around and cry. Why are they crying? Because in essence, even though you're the Kohen Gadol, even though we've spent time with you, we taught you, we did everything with you, still the Torah commands us to suspect that maybe you're a heretic. Maybe you're one of the Sadducees. So we're making you swear that you're not going to do it like the heretics. And they'll cry for in essence being obligated to suspect him. And he's crying for being suspected. This is part of the servitude at the Bet HaMikdash. Be'ezrat Hashem, we will see when HaKadosh Baruch Hu brings us to Mashiach and he builds the third Bet HaMikdash or it comes down from Shemaim. This is in the Mishnah in Masechet Yemah, the first chapter. So now, the beautiful Torah here shows us three different opinions so which one is right the chazonish doesn't tell us which one is right really he tells us rashi said this the rambam said something else and he also told us of a third opinion so which one is it rabbi chazonish which one is it he says that's not the important thing. The important thing is to know why each brought what they brought. That's the important thing. 
So now let's analyze what's going on here. Rashi says that the people were not humbled by their illness because they were cured immediately. Now I'm not sure how many people know this halacha and live by it, but the Rambam writes in his Sefer HaMitzvot. Sefer HaMitzvot is telling us what are our 613 mitzvot from the Torah. Mitzvah number four. Mitzvah number four. The fourth positive commandment is that which he has commanded us to believe in the awe-inspiring nature of the exalted one and to fear him. This is a mitzvah to fear God. In essence, Rashi is saying they were not fulfilling this mitzvah. Now, perhaps they did and you don't know it. Therefore, the Rambam clarifies. This mitzvah includes not to be like the heretics who do as they wish without regard for the consequence of their actions. Meaning, they make sins, but they're nonchalant about it. They're careless or they're calm about it. Oh, did I just turn that on? What, Shabbat started? Oh, okay, yeah. Said that. It's okay, it's okay. Oh, that's not kosher? Oh, yeah, I took a bite. It's delicious, though. Ah, you know, okay, fine. I won't eat the rest. They're nonchalant about the, the, the sins. Oh, I'm not allowed to wear this? Oh, okay. Oh, I'm not allowed to do this? Oh, all right, no big deal. No big deal. We'll try again. They're calm, collected, no big deal. Says the Rambam. Those people are heretics. Those people are heretics. Why? They do as they wish without regard for the consequences of their actions, but rather to fear the blessed one's punishment at any moment. Here the Rambam clarifies, as the Kinat Sofrim points out, that this commandment is not fear of God referring to the awe of his majesty and his glory and his kinghood. No, this is not referring to that type of fear. Here the Rambam is explicit about the fact of fearing God's punishment. And it's different than what the Rambam wrote in the Mishneh Torah, in Ilchot Yesodea Torah, chapter 2, Alachan number 1, where he's referring to the awe of the uh, of Kadosh Baruch Hu and feeling of our own inferiority, how we're nothing, and, uh, and contemplating the greatness of God and our own insignificance. This is not it. Here, mitzvah number four. The Rambam says, don't be a heretic that does not fear God's punishment. Don't be a heretic that thinks making sins is not a big deal. Don't be a heretic where after you make a sin, you're nonchalant about it. Nah, so what? I watch movies that are not allowed. I go here that's not allowed. It's okay. God will understand me. 
Don't be like those people, says the Rambam. As the Torah tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 13, 613. As an old Talmud of mine told me a long time ago when he saw this. This is what the exalted God said in the Torah. Fear the Lord your God. See here the Rambam is clarifying to us that the fear of the Almighty certainly has a couple of different ways of doing it. But the foundation is fear of actual punishment. Fear getting cancer. Fear of getting AIDS. Fear of getting, I don't know, whatever other disease there is out there. Not because you didn't eat healthy or you smoked cigarettes or you didn't pay attention that you were spending too much time in the sun or you're working at some lab that has all types of chemicals. No! Fear that a Kadosh Baruch Hu will chas v'shalom punish you because you're making sins. Fear that a Kadosh Baruch Hu will take that bank account that you swear by, will take that portfolio that you pray to, will take that house that you are simply comfortable because of, will take that significant other that you love more than life itself. Fear that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will take all those things. Fear that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will literally cause you agony beyond your imagination. Fear that HaKadosh Baruch Hu can cause you more pain than you can possibly fathom while the rest of the world continues at large without being affected. A person is obligated to believe this, to live like this, to think like this. Oh, but then I'll always be scared. Chazaku Baruch. That's the point. Reshit at Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of Hashem. Yeah, but I don't want to be uh, anxious all the time and scared all the time. No one says you have to be anxious all the time and scared all the time of everything. Just God. In fact, it's a much easier and better way of life. Most people are scared of people. They're scared of what people say, people think. They're scared of being late to an appointment. They're scared of, you know, all types of side effects. They're scared of not looking right. They're scared of people not accepting them. They're scared of not getting stuff from people, people, people. They're constantly scared of everything except God. Because as the Netiveo, Rabbi Israel Salant says, is uh, Or Israel. His book is called Or Israel. He writes that people are scared of everything naturally except Hashem. They're scared of bugs. They're scared of poverty. They're scared of loneliness. They're scared of all types of things except God. Why? Because to be scared of God, you actually have to work for it. You have to acquire it. You have to learn Torah and you have to understand more and more 
of where you stand versus where Kadosh Baruch Hu is. You have to understand how much you need Him. You have to understand how much power is in His hands. These are things you're not born with naturally. Your fear of bugs, that can come naturally. Your fear of poverty, you can learn that from other people that are afraid of poverty. In fact, most people that consider themselves thinkers in universities and all types of schools, they're not really thinkers, they're sheep. Why? They're following what the professor told them to think. They're following what the teachers and the, their, their uh, fellow students think. They're not really thinking for themselves. They're thinking what other people think. People assume that, you know, the uh, evolution happened uh, just like uh, Darwin said. Even though Darwin himself said that this whole theory has endless amount of gaps, but he believes that over time those gaps will be filled. Millions of fossils have been found, and as Rabbi Vigdor Miller says in his write-up, they still haven't filled those gaps. But yet people continue to believe. Why? Because someone told them to believe. Someone told them to believe that you came from a monkey. Someone told them to believe that there is continuity among the species even though there's no proof of it. So most people that consider themselves thinkers are not really thinkers, they're sheep. And therefore they're afraid of not thinking like other sheep, like other people because then they wouldn't fit in. And people are afraid to be different. Here, the Torah commands you to be different by saying, don't be afraid of anything other than Hashem. You shouldn't be afraid of anything. In fact, you're forbidden from being afraid of anything other than Hashem. Why? Because He is the first cause. If there's a bug in front of you, if there's missing money in your pocket, if there's a bank account that's rejecting your checks and all of a sudden they're not working even if there's money in the account or if there isn't money in the account, if there's an application that you put in that was rejected even though you fit the criteria, if there's a shiduch that doesn't work out, if there's even a marriage that you thought was good that suddenly ends, if there's all of a sudden pain in your side, if there's all of a sudden pain everywhere, if there's all of a sudden a doctor telling you that you don't have much time even though they don't really know the diagnosis, if there's all types of things happening in your life, it all came from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. All of it, without exception. He's the first and only cause. All based on your actions. So being afraid of acceptance from society or poverty or hunger or any of those things is wrong why the bug can't do anything to you unless Hashem allows him to the lion can't do anything to you unless Hashem allows you to we saw that with Daniel we saw that with we saw it with several different other sages throughout time we saw it with Moshe Rabbeinu lions were afraid of him Why? Because Hashem decides everything. All types of people will teach you you can overcome the fear by, you know, fighting it and then doing this. No, no, no. You don't need to overcome anything. You just need to know what to fear. Fear Hashem and Hashem only. 
And that's why it's one of the 613 commandments that HaKadosh Baruch Hu obligated us, not suggested to us, obligated to us to fear God and only God. And here says the Rambam, when a person is like one of these people that's a lates, as Rav Vigdo Miller says, that is the trait of Amalek. Amalek was known as a lates. What's a lates? He makes everything that's important and significant in a Torah, especially the fear of God, unimportant, inconsequential, something that's not necessary. Says the Rambam, fear of God means don't be like the heretics who do as they wish without regards to the consequence of their actions. They invite inappropriate guests to the community, to the synagogue, to the house. Why? Why not? But it's forbidden according to the Torah. Yeah, but I'm sure there's someone else that says otherwise. Who? Some rabbi that I know and when? He said it, you know, at some point. Where? We believe he did. (laughs) So you are going against the Torah out in the open by doing things and even when you're asked, even when you're challenged, you cannot even provide a legitimate response, but rather just a bunch of opinions that are in essence saying, you believe you're right. And even if you're wrong, you're not that wrong. That, Rabutai, is heresy. That is a form of heresy, says the Rambam here. So, when the, when Rashi says that Am Yisrael lost the Sefer Arefuot because they were not humbled by their sickness, because they were not afraid of God, in essence, the loss of this book was both a punishment and a cure in itself, or at least something that was supposed to be a cure. It was a punishment for not fulfilling a significant part of the Torah, of fearing God. But it was also a cure in itself where now that you cannot just open up this book and get a cure, you'll be forced to pray to God. You'll be forced to realize how insignificant you are. You'll be forced to realize that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one that decides whether you live or die. You'll be forced to do all those things. On the other hand, we see that the Rambam brings a mention, brings a lack of bitachon, lack of confidence in God. Lack of confidence in God is not good. Why? Why don't you trust God? The Chovot HaLevavot says in the Shah Avodata Elohim, the gate called serving God in chapter 5, 
that how does a person know that he's on the path of serving a Kadosh Bokhu? What is he supposed to think like? He should have a clear grasp of what the Creator has implanted in the human mind, namely the adoration of the truth, contempt of falsehood, preference for righteousness, avoidance of injustice, repaying the good with goodness and praising them, while repaying the wicked with wickedness and condemning them, being on peaceful terms with people and acting kindly towards them, returning praise for favors, reward for kindnesses, and punishment for wickedness, weighing the superiority of one reward over another and the severity of one punishment compared to another, and forgiving offenders when they truly repent. When these concepts are clearly established in man's soul, by way of his intellect and power of perception, his intellect will have become sound and his perception strong. Further, the Chavot HaLevod is saying, when he tries to recount his actions and grasp them in his mind and cannot do it because they're all so encompassing and abounding and constant and continuous, he will demand of his soul what his mind recognizes as obligatory, repaying benefactors with good, choosing justice. He will resolve to repay Akadosh Baruch Hu, may he be, uh, be exalted for the abundant good that he has showered upon him. But then when he realizes that he doesn't have the power to do so and that his creator does not need him, he will be bound to humble himself and to be lowly and small in his own sight. Afterwards, he will solicit his mind concerning those actions which will enable him to draw near and come close to God in order that they may serve as a substitute for the return that is due to him. His mind will then guide him on the straight path in this regard. In so many words, the Chavot HaLevavot is telling us, if you are on the right path, your thinking changes. All of a sudden, you're attracted to good. You want to do good for the sake of good, not because of reward, not because of praise, Simply, you are attracted to good because it is good. You are revolted, disgusted by bad, by dishonesty, by wickedness. You also naturally become more sensitive to the honor of God and even more so more sensitive to reward and punishment. And naturally, you also become more grateful. But that journey of Increased gratitude will make you also in a quandary of sorts, of some type of difficulty that you've never dealt before, which is facing the fact that you owe everything you have to God and that you actually cannot pay Him back because He doesn't need you. Anyone that says otherwise is simply a heretic. But here, he's telling us that even though he doesn't need you, that shouldn't discourage you. 
Rather, it should humble you, which in itself will connect you more to Hashem and make you a better servant of Hashem. And therefore the conversation between the soul and the mind as the Chovot Elevot portrays here. It's a beautiful conversation between the soul and the mind. In essence, the soul is trying to do tshuva and the mind knows how. And the mind says, if your longing for Hashem comes after clear realization of how great is the debt that you owe Him, how little it is in your power to repay Him, and that your neglect of it brings you ruin, while your diligence in it secures your salvation and your life then your longing is genuine and your desire ardent but if not it is false it is false yearning for god so now here we understand what the chavod levavod said a thousand years ago about this connection this deeper connection to hashem requires you to know where you stand requires your thinking to change and therefore when the Rambam brings us this opinion of lacking bitachon, he's not saying that no this was not a problem that there was no lack of bitachon because everyone was perfect because obviously there is no such thing as everyone is perfect there were many people that were righteous as we see in the example we see that there was kids that were learning to mind Torah. We see that there was nobody ignorant of Torah. People that, generally speaking, were on the best level they were ever. But there's always weak, weak people. And lack of bitachon was certainly one of the problems. It's just that the Rambam is saying, I reject this. Because I don't think that was the main key. But when it comes to lack of bitachon, that's always an issue, as we saw in the five books of Moses. Akadosh Baruch Hu says, they tested me ten times, and all ten tests are tests of lack of bitachon in Hashem. What is this lack of bitachon in Hashem? It's a lack of connection to Hashem that puts you in a situation where you trust something else and not Him. You have confidence in yourself and not Him. You have confidence in your money and not Him. You have a connection to something else bringing you your salvation and not Him. And ultimately, it makes you think that you don't need Him as much as you really do. And the Chavot HaLevavot says, if your thinking was right, you would reject this type of thought in the most aggressive way because you would yearn for good and hate bad. You adjourn for truth and despise the falsehood. You would realize your own insignificance and how much you owe him, but yet do not have a way to pay him back because he doesn't need you. But that does not discourage you. Rather, it humbles you and turns you into a better servant of God. So here... The lack of bitachon is rejected by the Rambam not because everyone was perfect. Rather, he's saying, look, so many people were connected to Hashem in the Torah 
naturally you would think bitachon was not the problem. Why would bitachon be the problem if they're learning Torah all day? And that's why I say it's something else, he says. It doesn't make sense for it to be bitachon because they're learning Torah all day. They're serving God all day. Obviously, they realize they're insignificant. Obviously, they realize the cure is not coming unless they read this book. So how can you read this book, get a cure for AIDS, get a cure for cancer, get a cure for brain aneurysm, get a cure for a stroke, get a cure for a heart attack, and not have bitachon Hashem? Doesn't make any sense. Because we're not talking about a bunch of heretics that are, you know, worshipping uh, themselves. We're talking about people who learn Torah. So the Rambam says, this does not make sense as the problem for the whole generation. Certainly it was a problem for some people. But I don't think it was the main reason why it justifies hiding this book. I think the reason was that the few bad people that were there were more than a few. And in fact, caused much more damage than the good. Because those that learned Torah had fear of God, had bitachon, didn't really need the book because they could connect to Hashem. And perhaps them having access to it was good for them. But there was too much bad coming out of that book also because the few bad people that did not have fear of God, that did not have bitachon Hashem, they were using the book for bad reasons. And here we see Rabotai Yekarim simply a way to understand that just because there is different opinions by the sages, it doesn't necessarily mean that one is right and one is wrong always. We have in the Torah times where it says one a particular opinion about different reasons, different things, different laws. One of the examples that's in Achtov Israel, the fourth volume by Rabbi Ephraim, is the whole topic of lending money with interest to non-Jews being forbidden when it's with high interest and in many, uh, according to many opinions, even when it's without high interest. But needless to say, one of the things that the unlearned rely on is that, look, it says here that it's a mitzvah to lend money with interest to non-Jews. And there's a second opinion in the Torah that says, says that. But in Rabbi Ephraim's tshuva, which Be'ezat Hashem, we will have the strength and the merit to complete the translation of one day, very soon. He explains not only how this is the wrong thinking and the wrong conclusion, but he also gives a breakdown of how to determine halacha. In essence, showing us 
how to actually determine halacha, how to consider and evaluate these different opinions when you have one place with two opinions, how do you know which one to go with? In the Shulchan Aruch, it happens every so often where the Rabbi Yosef Karo says what the halacha is, but also he ends with a few extra words, v'yeshomrim, such and such, which is the opposite. And the Chachamim say, we obviously know there's rules. We can't just decide, oh, he wrote all of this, but we're going to decide otherwise because there's three extra words that says, v'yeshomrim. There's rules to knowing how to read the Shulchan Aruch. Know that, yes, we're mentioning that there's yeshomrim, there's other opinions, but we don't paskin like it. What about when it's in the Gemara, in the source, where it says there's the first version, there's the Ika di Amre, and there's also the Ika de Matne, you have the uh, different uh, second version. Is there a firm way that you always pick like the first way or like the second way? In essence, in the absence of a steadfast rule, we follow what seems to be more plausible, which is the first version which has a strong reason to decree it in order to prevent something specific or in order to conclude something. Meaning, if there isn't a steadfast rule that makes an exception of of some kind that says we have to pask in like the second version that was mentioned, the default is go with the first option, the first thing that's mentioned. So why mention the second version at all? A person would ask. Number one, it's to show you that there are conflicting opinions. You're not the first one that rejected it if you came up with a conflicting opinion. Another reason is to show you that the breadth of the Torah is much bigger than just simply being black and white. Third, that there are times that there are exceptions where even though this is the rule there are exceptions to the rule again another example of showing how things are not black and white third it obligates us to learn things deeply and not superficially like many people do where they can learn a two three hour sure about a topic for example, the film we did about Ganon or the film we did about Tikkun Abrit or the film we did about Chibut Kevel. Each one of those films was a compilation of different lectures we've done over the last decade. Each one has over a hundred sources from the different parts of the Torah from the five books of Moses, from the Tanakh, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, from Shulchan Aruch, from the Gemara, from the Zohar, the Yerushalmi, the Bavli, the different uh, books in Hasidut, different Sifre Musar, literally an extraordinary amount of sources were reviewed. Thousands upon thousands of sources were reviewed. Some were selected. Each film has over 100 sources. The Geno movie, I believe, has 172 sources. The uh, 
uh, Tikkun Abrit has somewhere around 120 and similar to the Chibut Kevel. Now, a person can watch this and with the point and the intention of the film is to show you this is the truth. This is the final opinion. This is how Am Yisrael Paskets. This is the bottom line. And most people arrive at that conclusion. But what happens is, and it's usually with people that do not watch the whole film, they either skim through parts of it or see the first few minutes or simply conclude that they know enough to already challenge how they go and find some Gemara or some writings in some other book of their likings that says something that seems like it's conflicting it where it says look over here it says uh, the opposite it says uh, everyone goes to heaven or everyone has a share of the world to come or any other type of statement and for someone that invested literally years and years of their life learning Torah, learning this particular subject and other subjects, and also learning how to learn, it's extremely frustrating to see how people disrespect the Torah. I don't care about me. I don't care about anything else. I care about the kavod of my Rav. But I also can't stand it when people think the Torah is so small, where they think that they could just simply negate the whole thing because of one particular place they don't even know how to interpret and they don't even know how to understand this is as frustrating as can be why because it usually comes from people that are supposed to know better either they're people that have gone to yeshiva attend yeshiva currently sometimes even rabbis have had Will you expect these people to at least know how to learn and not just say, oh, because I found this, therefore it's the opposite. You can't just challenge an entire uh, 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 book of sources with just one particular point. That's not how the Torah works. Not because of this particular topic. It's regarding any topic. Same goes, for example, where people bring me, for example, different things in regards to Shabbat and the observance of Shabbat versus desecration of Shabbat. We know that there are certainly many lectures we've made over the years to discuss this topic of the obligations to keep Shabbat and how a Jew that does not keep Shabbat and desecrates it, drives on Shabbat, works on Shabbat, it's considered equivalent of an idol worshiper according to the halacha one common example that's the most extraordinary is the 12 times that it's mentioned in the torah and even clarified in the gemara in masechet chulin masechet shabbat masechet sanedrin and paskin la by the rambam in ilchot shabbat chapter 30 last halacha but of course there's going to be People that say, wait, but there are different poskim that were great in recent times that 
say that perhaps we are all tinokot shenishbu, we're all captured babies. And therefore, even if he desecrates Shabbat, you can still count them in Minyan, and some even say, make him even the Chazan, the Shliach Tzibu. And of course, we've addressed this, and we brought the Yabi Omer. The Yabi Omer in Orachayim Siman Nun Hey, he brings the entire argument in the uh, 10th volume, the different opinions, the ones that were lenient, the ones that were stringent, he brings the Igot Moshe, who says that you can include the Mechalel Shabbat for Kaddish, but not for Minyan. Most people understand the Igot Moshe, Moshe Feinstein, as if saying everyone's Tinok Shadishba, you can just include them and in everything. No, no, no. What the Igot Moshe actually said is that if he's a Mechalel Shabbat, then you can make a special circumstance and include them for Kaddish, not for Minyan. Why? It's a lesser requirement. Rav Tzion rejected this. Completely. So we have two different opinions. We also have Rav Ovadia himself in Sefer Alichot Olam clarify the Ben Ishchai and it was also supported by Rav Ephraim Cohen, who was a Talmud of the Ben Ishchai where you're not allowed to count them in Minyan according to the Ben Ishchai our own dear Rosh Kole the Rav Sharvit writes that someone's a Mechalel Shabbat you don't even have to return something that was uh, alone to him to that extent not that you should do it but again if let's say for example he lent you money and then he died and his family is unaware of him lending you the money. Allah says if he was a Mechalel Shabbat, you don't have to return the money to him. Why? He's an idol worshiper. The rules don't apply to him that are for the righteous Jew. So we see here, wait a minute. So one end, you're saying that maybe you can count them for Kaddish. Maybe you can't. Maybe some say you can't at all some say he's completely idol worshiper some say even as a dean that you don't even have to return a, a, a loan to him and then they bring you the chazonish so that everyone's a a tinok uh, but they forget to tell you that the same chazonish said you still have an obligation to tell him that he's not allowed to violate shabbat and that second that you told him he's not allowed to violate Shabbat, because you're obligated on the mitzvah of rebuking, he's no longer Tinok Shinishba. Meaning the Tinok Shinishba status, even if you want to use it, ends within a moment. 
And Ramavadya finalizes the whole thing here by saying, even if one wants to say that someone is a Tinok Shanishba, this is never referring to people that live in places where there are Jews, like New York, California, Florida, Israel, different parts of England. No, this is not referring to those communities. There is no Tinok Shanishba that lives in New York. There is no Tinok Shanishba that lives in Florida or in Los Angeles. There is no Tinok Shanishba that lives in Israel. There's no such thing. Why? He sees there are Jews. He sees people go to synagogue. He's heard of what Shabbat is. He's heard of what Yom Kippur is. Perhaps he even attended shul once or twice in his life. The fact that he chooses not to follow does not make him a Tinok Shanishba. It simply makes him a sinner. Now, the Tinok Shanishba that's referred to by the oral Torah is captured babies. Like Rav Mel Strasberg from nearly 500 years ago that some priest kidnapped his baby. Little Shloimili. Horrific circumstances that miraculously were resolved 30 years later. But that kid grew up in a monastery, thinking he's a, he's a non-Jew, he's going to be a priest, and he became a priest. He was a Tinok Shanishba for those 30 years. He was a captured baby. Kidnapped when he was three years old, did not even remember who his parents were. That's a captured baby. Captured baby today, theoretically speaking, is if the Jew was raised in like Montana, or somewhere in Tennessee where there's simply only cows and land next to you. You are somewhere in Idaho. You are somewhere in different parts of the world where there are no Jews. And you don't even know what a Jew is. Perhaps like some of the Palestinian terrorists that are actually Jews. But don't realize they're Jews because their Jewish mother married an Arab and was not allowed to tell the kids that she's a Jew and thereby making them Jews. They were captured babies. They're Tinok Shanishba. But to say that you, Moshe, and you, Yaakov, are Tinok Shanishba, just because you went to public school, just because you don't feel like following Allah, and then when you finally decide to go to shul, we're going to make you the shliach tzibu, the chazan. Doesn't work that way. It simply doesn't work that way. So how do we deal with all of these different issues? The same exact way. You don't ever take one single line from anywhere in the Torah and say this is the final law. Why? The Torah is huge, is enormous. And therefore, when you study a sugya, some type of subject, whether it's fundamentals like reward and punishment or and Shabbat, or it's lending money with interest, or any other issue out there, when you learn the entire 
body of halacha, you realize they say aloud or not aloud in the lecture as if it's so simple. But in reality, to get to that point of saying, yes, it's allowed or it's not allowed, required an enormous amount of study, an enormous amount of understanding and clarifications and debates and going back and forth among the Chachamim for the last few thousand years. Everything was considered. There's nothing new under the sun that you're going to bring that's going to simply put the Torah on its face. No matter who brings it. Why? Because it was already discussed. It was already reviewed. It was already clarified. It was already concluded. And even the ones that say otherwise, the Yeshomrim, were also included. We don't do what the Christians say we do, like pretty much close our eye to part of the Torah. Everything is opened. Everything is considered. Everything is evaluated. And every different circumstances reevaluates the same exact things in order to make sure that everything applies just the same for different circumstances. And therefore, when we see the Chachamim say, the final conclusion for a Jew that violates Shabbat is that he's considered an idol worshiper, that he cannot be counted in Minyan. We're not seeing an opinion of some fanatics. We're seeing this is simply Da Torah. And even if you want to rely on those that were more lenient for the ignorant among us or did not have the right education among us, at the very least, educate yourself about the actual leniency itself. No one ever said someone has the right, has the permission to remain ignorant or to allow someone to remain ignorant because the obligation of rebuke is part of the Torah and the Torah doesn't change. And even those that want to challenge, wait, but there is some place in the Torah that says no one is good enough to rebuke anymore, needs to learn further and know that they're not talking about, you know, simply disassembling the Torah and canceling one of the mitzvot because that would negate one of the 13 principles of faith. It's referring specifically to not being able to rebuke the same way we were able to rebuke in the past, which is across the entire spectrum of the Torah because there were many tzaddikim back then. But certainly you're obligated to rebuke on things that you're doing okay. If you eat kosher, you rebuke on kosher. If you uh, keep Shabbat, you rebuke on Shabbat. But don't rebuke somebody on immorality if you're immoral yourself. Don't be a hypocrite. Either way, know what you're going to say before you say it. Don't just think that you could just take one statement you found on Google somewhere or one book you happen to have in your house and you could just simply take the Torah and throw it on its face. If the Chachamim say, this is the final truth, you could assume that they got there after reviewing, after studying, after toiling, after trying to even reject the circumstance as part of the learning in order to put it to the test. And still that was the answer. So when you see something that says 
there is another opinion there is another version there is another statement know how to handle it sometimes you have to take that statement and see what surrounds that statement who else discussed that statement how do we conclude when it comes to that statement is this the final halakha is this the first version the second version what else is said that's conflicting this particular statement that agrees with this statement don't just take the statement that you saw somewhere and say this is it that's not how torah works the torah is enormous and minimizing it is a horrible horrible crime and even more so there are times they'll see that there are different statements that at first look like they're conflicting like our shield tonight those three different possibilities was it lack of yirat shamayim lack of bitachon possibility of poison but we saw how after delving into it the opinions don't conflict in fact they could all be true in fact they're most likely all true because they fit like a puzzle they had lack of fear of heaven because it was easy to access this book and this easy access to the book led to less confidence in Hashem to, to help you because you didn't need confidence in Hashem to help because you have this book and since people go down in fear of Hashem and bitachon Hashem it's more likely to make some of them more sinful more wicked and start delving into the forbidden parts of the book that discussed poison or use forbidden parts of the book so you see there are different ways that you can actually use the same three different opinions and see to it that they're all right where this and this are the words of the living God and therefore a conflicting opinion is not really so conflicting but rather another piece of the puzzle but there are times where there are conflicting opinions and a person must know that there is extensive talk in the Torah in countless books about every single topic including the one that you think is important that you think is the opposite of what people think and if you study long enough and delve into it and delve into it you'll see the fulfillment of what the sages said in Avot. you'll see that everything is in it thank you very much for learning with me who bless each and every one of us and all of Klal Yisrael with the Siyat Dishmaya during our learning of Torah to be able to learn clearly understand everything and remember everything that we're learning and to be able to apply all of it to our lives in order to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu with fear and with love we'll learn again later this week to everyone
Anyone that wants to donate and support our organization can go to bhtorah.org or bezatashem.org or donate on one of the many other avenues that you're watching it right now as we speak. Kol tuv, asked him what can we do to protect ourselves from Chavrei Mashiach he says Torah and Gminut Chasadim even if somebody does a, a nice thing or learns a lot or anything like that it's never compared to bringing one of Hashem's lost kids that's been lost for the last 3,000 years back home one of the beautiful things that we have in our organization is that we have both Torah and Zikri Arabim because we have our Kolels we have our Avrachim and we also have our cube that we do around the world our lectures reach every corner of the world Baruch Hashem in multiple languages but of course we always want to do even more while we have Kiruv work that we've done throughout the whole year, we also have the Torah that we're constantly producing more and more of, and last but not least, the uh, Chesed to feed the poor people in Israel. A very special thank you to all our amazing guests who show real about this land by taking the time out of their busy schedule and sharing their ups and downs with us, all for the sake of our land. One of the big things that we have, aside from this campaign, you probably see this poster or something similar to it, is also we published some of the recent results that we have, or at least up to now, of the organization. And one of the reasons why we do this each year is because we want to make sure that our partners, our donors, our Talmidim, know where their money is going. Unlike everybody else that, you know, uh, says a lot, does a lot, we want to show you what these results are. I can tell you from my experience and a little bit of knowledge about the whole Torah world, I don't know of anybody else, uh, any other organization on planet Earth that produces dollar for dollar what we've produced over these last few years. This is nothing to be arrogant about. It's simply Siyat Bishmaya HaKadosh Baruch who helped us. We made every sacrifice that we can possibly make in order to, to make it happen. Producing nearly 300 films, publishing 32 books, our own books, giving out 154,000 books for free. Giving out 154,000 books 
is not a cheap endeavor. Anyone that wants to do such a thing has to be completely committed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to his children, and most importantly, to have bitachon in HaKadosh Baruch Hu and his Torah. We also have fed over 160,000 people over these last several years. Each year, during Pesach, the high holidays, throughout the year, we help a lot of people eat, help make sure that they have groceries, food, all types of things, and uh, you guys have seen many of the videos that are uh, that we've produced over the years to actually show you the people that are getting this food. You have here 160,000 people have eaten, nearly 300 Torah films. And then on top of all of it, we have 1.4 million USB CDs and cards that have been giving out for free. All of the work that we've done over the last 10 years on these USBs given out for free. Last but not least, 12,000 video and audio lectures available online in about 14 different languages for the world to watch for free. ארגון בעזרת השם לקח על עצמו את אחת המטרות הקשות ביותר בדור שלנו. לתקן עולם במלכות שדי. לא להסתפק במשהו אחד, לעזור רק לאנשים מסכנים, רק לאנשים ניצולי שואה, רק לאנשים שלא מכירים את אלוקים, רק לאנשים שאין להם כלום בבית, אלא לעזור לכלל ישראל בכל מכל כל. וברוך השם, חפץ השם בידינו הצליח. למעלה ממיליון יהודים ויהודיות נעזרו על ידי ארגון בעזרת השם. רק תדמיינו לכם איזה עוצמה היה לכל אחד ואחת מהשותפים שזכו להיות כל אחד כפי כוחו ויכולתו, לאיזה תוצאות הצליחו להגיע ולאיזה תוצאות עוד יצליחו. ברפור הוא שמח על לראות את השלטים, נעלה עכשיו למעלה, כמו קצת האש, את הלימוד. ברוכים הבאים, אפשר לראות כאן. כולם יושבים לומדים, איזה רעש של תורה, איזה רעש, איזה רעש, והנה יש פה עוד בית מדרש. וגם פה יש, השם הכל עמוס. דמיון הזה הוא לא דמיון כל כך רחוק, כי כמו שהתורה אומרת, בפיך ובלבבך לעשותו, ככה גם בדבר הזה. כל מי שירצה, כל מי שרוצה או רוצה להיות שותפים איתנו, עם הארגון הקדוש והנפלא הזה, שכל כוונתו לשם שמיים, להגדיל תורה ולהאדירה, להרים קרן התורה, לעזור לכל אחד ואחד מעם ישראל, בכל העניינים. כל המישורים, מהילד הכי קטן שצריך מטרנה וטיטולים עד האיש הכי 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 מבוגר שלעולם לא הניח תפילין ורגע לפני המוות דואגים להניח לו תפילין. אם גם אתם רוצים להיות שותפים בכאלה דברים גדולים בעשייה של תורה ועבודה בגנים חסדים, ברוך השם, ארגון בעזרת השם כאן, לצדכם, לשירותכם, יחד עם כלל ישראל. כמעט מיליון וחצי דיסקים, דיסקונקים שחילקנו, כל הדברים האלה בחינם, יותר מ-12 אלף שיעורים, אז כל הדברים האלה, מתי שבן אדם רואה כמה ההשקעה שלו, אם זה בבתים, מניות, בכל מיני דברים, והוא רואה שהמניה עלתה 10% במקום אחד, ו-1,000% במקום שני, אז הוא מבין איפה להשקיע פעם הבאה. ואותו דבר פה, יש הרבה אנשים שברוך השם צופים את השיעורים שלנו, שיעורים של הרב אפרים, שיעורים של הרב שרביט, ושאר הרבנים בארגון, ועכשיו זה הזמן להיות שותפים בדבר הגדול שאנחנו עושים ברוך השם. One of the reasons why we do this, why we show these numbers, is because we want to show everyone what we've done to give you an indication. 
an indication of what we can do in the future. So this is the time where we need as much of your help as possible to push yourself more than you typically do. If you typically donate a couple hundred dollars, donate a thousand. If you, uh, if you can afford uh, the uh, uh, 8,000, 15,000, 50,000, whatever you can afford, this is the time to do it because this is going to be the help that we have to help all of these Avachim, to feed these people and perhaps Bezal Hashem one day to get that building that we've been uh, wanting to, uh, to build here in, uh, in the United States to build a community. But the, all of these things require millions of dollars. If not now, then when?